following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in the series in the book of Philippians, journeying through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And this morning we're in chapter 1. It's a longer passage this morning, but I'll, I'll read it for you and you can follow along uh, in your own Bible. Chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and I'm going to read through to verse 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the entire palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Uh, one of the more unusual parts of my role is taking funerals. Uh, I don't take that many funerals, thank goodness, but uh, it is one of the more intense parts of the job of being a pastor, and um, it is, it's often really challenging and uh, a difficult time, but I've come to see it as a real privilege to take a funeral and that opportunity to journey with a family through what is often some of the hardest, darkest times of their life. Uh, and I've come to see it as a real opportunity as well. When you, when you have a funeral service, you've almost always got people there that are not Christians, at least some of them. And the opportunity there, when you've got people that are thinking about issues of life and death, I mean, people, you know, when they come to a funeral service, in a way, it's like being transported into a space where you're thinking about deeper questions. You're thinking about what life really means as you, as you think about the life of this person who's passed away. You're thinking about death. You're thinking about what lies on the other side. And it's a great moment to be able to speak in uh, a message of, of Christian hope and, and encouragement, give a little challenge to people and just cause them to think a little bit more deeply about what they're living for. I think as we look at this passage in Philippians, in some ways you can see this as that kind of moment for Paul. Not that this is a funeral, uh, not yet at least for Paul, uh, but he's certainly thinking about issues of life and death. 
And I'm hoping that in some ways, as we think about this passage this morning, it can, it can be that kind of moment for you too. Uh, I, I'm trying not to make this too much like a funeral service, but I'm hoping that this can be a time, as you think about this passage, it raises deep questions about the meaning of life and even the meaning of death. And I hope for you it can be a time where maybe you can put aside distractions of other things going on in your life, other things that you're thinking about right now, things that are preoccupying your time and attention, and think a little bit more deeply about what life really means, about what you're living for, and about living in light of your eternal future. That's where Paul wants our focus to be as he writes these words. So a little bit of background, a little bit of context here. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. He's in lockdown, uh, not the kind of lockdown that we've had, but uh, a much more serious kind of lockdown where he's awaiting trial that is going to decide the outcome of his life. Uh, he's going to eventually stand trial before Nero, Nero Caesar. And uh, that trial is either going to end up in Paul's acquittal, in which case he'd be a free man. That's what he's hoping for. Or it's going to end up in a guilty verdict. And if it's a guilty verdict, Paul is almost certainly going to be executed. And as he reflects on this with the Philippians, we don't get a lot of details here about Paul's trial. We don't get a lot of details about all of the legal proceedings around this. But what we get is Paul's reflection on what this means and how he understands the position that he's in and how it's making him think about life and about what comes after this life. That's why these words are so valuable to us. Now, let me read to you from uh, verse 20. Pick it up from there and just focus in on what Paul's saying. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. So what Paul's saying is when the time comes for that trial, when I stand before the emperor and I'm called on to give an account or to give my testimony, I'm praying that I won't be ashamed in that moment, that I won't shrink back that I won't freeze up, that I won't not know what to say, but that God will give me courage by his Holy Spirit, that God will enable me to have a sense of, of, of boldness, uh, just as Paul had at other times when he spoke before rulers, so that he would be able to speak up and speak out for Christ and that Jesus would be exalted, whether through his life or death, whether whatever way the verdict goes, Paul is saying, my prayer is that Jesus would be exalted. And that's a radical way of looking at life, isn't it? I mean, you think how different that would be probably to the way most of us would see it. I mean, we would just be desperate to be acquitted. That's, that would be our focus. We would, if we were writing this letter, we'd be saying, I'm hoping and expecting that I'll be released, that I'll be acquitted, that the, this, this whole miscarriage of justice will be resolved, that I will be found not guilty, that the focus, our focus would be on the outcome for ourselves and yet Paul's whole focus here is on the outcome for Jesus. His whole focus is on whether Christ is going to be exalted. In some ways, he's saying my life's inconsequential. Whether I live, whether I die, well, the most important thing is that Jesus is lifted up. The most important thing is that Jesus is magnified, that Jesus is exalted. How different is that to the way that we tend to live? We're so concerned about ourselves. Paul is concerned about Jesus. He's concerned about the gospel and, uh, and what the outcome will be. For the gospel. Uh, it's challenging. And this all builds to the statement that Paul makes, this climactic statement in verse uh, 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's a well-known verse, isn't it? You, you probably have heard that verse before. You might have memorized that verse. It's a popular memory verse. You might have that verse on your coffee mug. Uh, you might have it on your tea towel. You might have that verse embroidered on your wall. 
but you know, for us, it's like a Christian slogan. We've got to remember for Paul, this was life and death. Uh, for us, these can be easy words to say, and it's a nice memory verse. But for Paul, he was standing here on the precipice between living and dying. This was very real for him. This was life. This, he was very seriously contemplating the possibility that this would end in his death. So he is really asking the big questions here and reflecting on what it's all about. And he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, there is tremendous power in those words, if we can really feel the weight of what Paul is saying here. I want to look at both halves of that. It's two phrases there. I want to just unpack this with you a little bit this morning. First of all, Paul says, to live is Christ. It's a strange sounding phrase in some ways, isn't it? So compact. To live is Christ. What does Paul mean by that? Well, let me try and give you an analogy here to help you understand it. Uh, on my phone, probably like most of your phones, I've got a whole bunch of apps, right? So you can think about your phone. You might have your phone out now reading, reading the Bible. Think about all the apps on your phone. Okay, if I open up my home screen, I've got my weather app. I've got my wallet there. I've got some news apps. got my banking app. You know, we've all got, we've got pages and pages of apps on our phone. Now, I want you to think for a minute of your life being like a phone, all right? Just bear with me on this. Think about your life like a phone. And think about all of the different areas of your life being like apps on your phone, okay? So you, you would have the, the work app, right, that represents your working life. You have the, the friends app, represents your social life with all your friends. Uh, you have the family app represents your family life or, or your household family relationships uh, you have the hobbies app you might have particular hobbies and interests and, and, and there's an app for each of those you might have the lying on the couch and doing nothing app all the different spheres of your life think of them like apps on your phone and uh, just like on your phone you can go in and see the usage of different apps over the last week or, or however long it is. You can see how much time you've spent on each app. That can be quite confronting, can't it? And how much percentage of your overall usage has gone into different apps. Uh, you could look on the phone of your life and see the different percentages of time that you're spending in these different spheres. How much time at work, how much time with your family, uh, how much time with friends, and, and what, what kind of priority or what kind of weighting these apps have in your life. Now, extend the analogy a little bit further. I think for most of us, we assume that Jesus is like an app on our phone. Right? So when we become a Christian, it's like downloading the Jesus app. Right? And, and what we assume is that well, I, I download the Jesus app, and, and now the point is to make the Jesus app really important and, and to use the Jesus app as much as I can. We, we want that to be an important part of our lives. And so if, if you're a really good Christian, you might say, well, I, I have the Jesus app on my home screen. Like as soon as I open up my, my life phone, uh, I've got the Jesus app right there. It's the most accessible app for me. It's the easiest one to get into and use. It's always right there. What a good Christian I am. Uh, you might even say, well, I'm, I'm such a super spiritual Christian that if you look at my phone usage, you would see that I use the Jesus app more than any other app in my life. 
I'd spend this time with Jesus and he's a priority for me. He's more important than these other things. I spend more time with him. I give more focus to him than all of these other things. And so we think that the goal of our lives is to make Jesus the most important app on our phone. All right, he's one of many apps, but we want to make him the most important one. And we think that's what it means to be a Christian or to be a good Christian. And I want to tell you from, from this passage that that is not the goal of the Christian life. Jesus does not want to be an app on your phone. That, that is not what he's after. That, that is not what he died on the cross for. That is not what he was raised from the dead for. He does not want to be an app on your phone. What Jesus wants to be is your operating system. Now, your operating system is a different thing, right? The operating system, the operating software on my phone, that's what drives the whole phone. That's what drives the whole device. It's like the engine of the phone. It's, it's the core. It's, it's the mainframe that enables every part of the phone to run. The operating system is what enables all of the apps to operate. It's not just one app alongside all the other apps. It gives power in a sense. It, it provides a framework for all of those apps to operate. If I don't have an operating system on my phone, none of the apps can run. Now, that's the place that Jesus wants to have in our lives. He doesn't want to be one app among all of the other apps in your life. Jesus wants to be the operating system. He wants to be the one that runs the whole thing. He wants to be the one that drives your entire life. That's what it means to live is Christ. That's why Paul says these words, because Jesus doesn't want to just be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. He wants to be your whole life. That's why Paul doesn't say to live involves Christ or to live incorporates Christ or to live includes Christ. No, no. To live is Christ. Jesus doesn't want to be one dimension of your life, not even the most important dimension of your life, not even the priority dimension of your life. He wants to be your whole life. Jesus wants to be the defining reality of your entire being. Jesus wants to be the central passion of your life. Jesus wants to be the beating heart of your existence. Jesus wants to be the blazing center of all that you do, that everything would emanate from him, that all of who you are would be about him. And when Jesus has that defining place in your life, then he starts to influence all of the other apps. So that's what the operating system does, right? As long as Jesus is just one of many different areas in your life, well, he may be the most important one, but really he doesn't need to have any connection to the others. He doesn't need to have any particular influence over the other parts of your life. But when Jesus is the blazing center of your life, when he is the operating system of your life, then he starts to influence all of the other areas of your life. He starts to affect the way that you are at work and what your working life looks like when Jesus is the defining center and reality and passion of your life. He starts to influence family relationships when he's at the center of your life. He starts to influence your social life. He starts to influence your relationships, your hobbies. Because at every point, you're asking the question now, how does this area of my life exalt Jesus? How is Jesus going to be lifted up in this area of my life? How is Jesus going to be glorified in that area of my life? How is Jesus going to be made known in this part of my life? How is Jesus going to be manifest in this part of my life? That's what Paul's asking. He's not making Jesus just one more part of his life among many. 
He is saying, my whole life is Christ. Jesus is the consuming focus of our lives. And I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you from God's word to ask yourself that question this morning. Can you say those words and mean them? Can you say, for me, to live is Christ? Maybe another way of asking that question. Fill in the blank. For me, to live is what? What's that word? What's that word? What's the word that jumps into your head right now before you've even had a chance to tell yourself the right answer? What's the word that jumps into your head? To live is family, maybe, for you. That might be the answer for you. Your life is defined by family. Family's a wonderful gift from God, but it's not supposed to be the word that fills in that blank. It is not supposed to be the defining center of our lives. For me to live is work. Maybe that's your reality. And honestly, you just live for work. That's the center of your life. That's the beating heart of your existence. That work is good, but it is never meant to be your life. For me to live is politics. Maybe. Some Christians, I think, are more excited and enthusiastic about politics than they are about Jesus at the moment. Maybe that's got that place in your life that Jesus is supposed to have. For me to live is sports. Maybe that's what goes in the blank. Be honest with yourself. Come on, God already knows. He knows what's going on in your life. Be honest about what word is sitting in that blank. And then ask yourself, do you truly desire to be able to say and experience this, that to live is Christ? Do you desire, even if it's not real for you yet, do you desire for Jesus to be the blazing center of your life, to be the greatest and central and all-consuming passion of your life, that all you want is to know Jesus more and have him be the sun in the center of the galaxy, the solar system, that everything else in your life orbits around. Is that your desire? Because if it is, God will take that desire and he will bring it to reality. If you bring it to him and say, God, this it's not where I, where I am right now, but it's where I want to be. I want to be able to say those words and I want to mean them, God. I want, Jesus, I want you to be the operating system in my life. Right now, you are just an app, but that's not what you want. That's not what I want, Jesus. I want you to be the very center and the beating heart of my life. If that's your desire this morning, bring it to God. Talk to him about it. And he will take you by the hand and say, all right, let's, let's lean into that. And let's step into that kind of future. Let's step into that kind of relationship. And over time, you will see your passion for him will grow and he will start taking that place in your life as you lean more and more into his presence. But it's got to come from a genuine desire. We can't fake it, right? It's not just about saying nice words in church. You know, I think those of you that are, that are parents of younger children, you know how this, how this works. You know, if, if honestly, if, if Jesus is not your defining passion, your kids are going to notice. They probably already have noticed. You know, like you think about what you talk about at home and, and maybe in your family. Yeah, God's important. Yeah, our Christian faith. Yeah, that's important because we kind of think it should be important. But really, what really gets you fired up is when you start talking about sports. You know, or what really gets you fired up is when you start talking about your work and what's going on in this project that you're working on. Or what really gets you fired up is when, is when you start talking about your friendships or the next holiday that you're going to take. Those are the things when your greatest passion comes out. If that's the case, your kids are going to pick up on that. 
And those, those may be great things, but what you are doing is subtly giving them the message, oh yeah, to live is sports, to live is holidays, to live is work. That's what you're teaching them. I know you're not intending to do that. I know that's not your desire. But when we, through our conversation, model to our families a passion for something greater than Jesus, that's essentially what we're saying. To live is something else. And if that something else is not God, then it's become an idol. And our idols need to be destroyed or put in, a, in, a, in their place as circling around Jesus, not central to our lives. So I encourage you again to, to, to bring all of who you are to God in, in whatever way this resonates with you, in whatever way God's challenging you from his word, bring that to God. And if it's the desire of your heart, say to him, God, I'm hungering today and I'm thirsting for more of you in my life. I don't want to make you an app anymore. I want you to be the center. I want you to be the operating system. Show me what that means and lead me into that kind of life. To live is Christ. Well, that's only the half of it. To live is Christ. Then the next phrase is equally important. Paul says, to die is gain. Now, look a little bit more closely at what he says and what he means by this. Uh, pick it up from verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. It's an interesting couple of verses, it sounds like Paul is kind of wrestling with this choice between living and dying. You know, he says, what shall I choose? As if he's choosing between life and death. Now, in reality, we know that that choice was not his. Uh, this was the decision that was going to be made by the emperor when Paul stood in the emperor's court and either got a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, depending on how the verdict went, Paul would live or he would die. But I think what's going on here is that Paul is, is having this personal monologue, which he, he shares with us, he shares with the Philippians, wrestling with which is better. Even though it's not his choice, he, he's wrestling internally with which is ultimately better, to live or to die? What, what's ultimately better, to live or live this life or, or the life to come? Now, again, here is where Paul's thought is so radically different to ours. I think if we were writing this, we would obviously say, well, to live has got to be better than to die, right? I mean, obviously, we, I want to stay here. Obviously, I want this life. Obviously, I want to be free. Obviously, I, 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 want, to, I want the trial to go well. I, I, don't, I don't want death. I want life. I mean, we all desire life, right? But I, I think Paul just had a bigger perspective. I think Paul just had an eternal perspective on this. And, and what Paul recognized is that if the trial went against him and he was found guilty and he was executed, then he would step into the life to come in heaven and he would look back and realize that all of his life on earth was just like the title page of the book. That's what our lives here are. Okay, we think this is the big deal. We think this is the whole story. We, we get so attached to this life. We put our roots down so deep in this life and we, and we want it. We, we assume the whole goal is to clock up as many years here as we can, right? The more years here, the better. Surely the goal has got to be to live as long as we possibly can to have as many years in this 
earth as we can. And yet Paul knew, man, the minute that he steps into heaven, he is stepping into something that is better by far than this world. He is stepping into an eternity of endless joy, an eternity of being in the presence of God and of God's people, an eternity of all the brokenness and sin and weakness of this life melting away, this future in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, beholding the face of God. And, and for Paul, he says, that is better by far. Do we really believe that that life to come is better, that it is gain on what we have here on earth, that this whole life here is just the title page. It's just the introduction to the story. When we finally get to heaven, that's when the real story begins. That's where our true calling ultimately is, not here on earth. That's the life we were designed for, ultimately. Yes, this life is part of our, our existence and our calling and eternal life starts now, but ultimately we are created for heaven. Ultimately, that's our eternity. And when we've been there for billions and billions of years, this life in this world is just going to seem like a blip. This is just, the Bible describes this as a mist. This life is a mist. It appears for a while and then it vanishes. And we put so much stock in this life and this world and our stuff here and what's going on here and my plans for this life and my security in this life. Man, this whole life, However many years you've got here, it's a mist. It is a brief little vapor that comes and goes in view of the eternity that we will have in heaven. We need to lift up our eyes and get more of an eternal perspective of life and death so that we can say to, to die is gain. Anna experienced more of this, I think more of the truth of that verse for herself around the time that her father died a few years ago. And that was an incredibly sad time. He, he died of complications from a bone marrow transplant. Uh, he had leukemia and um, through complications, he, he passed away. And it was just so in incredibly sad in one respect. He he'd just started his retirement years. Uh, he'd been doing up the beach house and, and looking forward to spending more time there with his wife and looking forward to an active retirement. And he never got to enjoy that. Never got to enjoy those retirement years. His life was cut short. But what I noticed is, as Anna grieved for her dad, even though there was this incredible sadness there that she experienced, underneath all of that, she had a deep sense of peace because of what he was experiencing in heaven. In fact, there were times when it was almost this strange paradox where she'd be so upset and the tears were flowing, and yet underneath that, there was almost a sense of joy. Somehow those two things were, were held together. Grief, but also joy. Because she knew that he was experiencing eternal pleasure and eternal riches in the presence of Jesus. She knew that he was in heaven and there's, there's no way he would ever want to be back in this world on this earth. I mean, he lived a good life, but anyone who has set foot in heaven never wants to return to this world in this life. Because what we experience here is absolutely eclipsed by the beauty and the bounty of what heaven is. And the person of Jesus that we see face to face in heaven. And she, she knew that and she sensed that. And I think that was just such a comfort for her in the midst of her grief. Knowing that truly for her dad, to die was gain. I think this is a fundamental truth that we've got to come back to as Christians. 
We just spend so much time storing up treasure here. When if we're willing to lift up our eyes and see we are created for eternity, then maybe we'll start storing up treasure in heaven. Rather than just stockpiling things on earth and, and obsessing ourselves about our years here and our security here and everything going on here. Let's give ourselves that eternal perspective and say, man, for me to die is gain. It is better by far. And the years God gives me here are a blessing. But I welcome the day when I'm going to stand before Jesus face to face. And then I'm going to truly discover what life is all about. Not because I'm just going to get some big palatial mansion in the sky. It's not just this heavenly consumerism, but because I will behold the face of God. And that is endlessly greater than anything we can experience in this life. That's the perspective Scripture wants us to have. That's what it means to say, to die is gain. So as we think about this powerful verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me just finish by sharing a couple of stories that John Piper shares. He's a pastor in the United States. And he shares a couple of little anecdotes. One is about a couple of women who were missionaries in Colombia. And they'd served faithfully there for many years. And one day they were together driving in a car and the brakes in the car failed. The car went over a cliff and the two of them were instantly killed. And Piper asks the question, was that loss of life a tragedy? And he answers, no, it wasn't a tragedy. It was incredibly sad. It was a horrific thing that happened. But ultimately, it wasn't a tragedy. He says, it was a glory because their lives had been poured out in the service of Jesus. And now they were entering into eternal life in the presence of the one they'd served. And then right after that, Piper tells another story. He tells the story of a, of a couple in the United States who were able to take an early retirement in their early 50s, I think. They'd worked hard, got enough financial security. They took an early retirement and lived in Florida. And they were able to spend their days walking the beach in Florida and collecting seashells. And he says, you know, when you look at that life, that's the real tragedy. Because on the day of Christ, when that couple stands before Jesus and he asks them, what, what do you have to show for your life? They're going to produce their seashells. And they're going to say, look at my amazing seashell collection. And that's all they're going to have to show. And he says, that is the greater tragedy. Now, the world looks at those two stories and it says, the story of those women killed in Colombia, that's a tragedy. But the story of those, those people who took an early retirement in Florida, that's a good life. That's a life well lived. And yet as Christians, we look at this and we say exactly the opposite. We look at those women in Colombia and we say ultimately their lives were a glory and they experienced glory and death. And the couple collecting seashells on the beach, that's the real tragedy because that's a wasted life. A life spent distracted by things that have nothing to do with God. That's a real tragedy. Now, until we understand that and until we can see that perspective that is so radically different from the world's, we will not understand these words that Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I don't want us, I don't want any of us to stand before Jesus on that day when he says, what have you done with your life? And what have you lived for? I don't want you to stand before him on that day filled with regret I don't want you to look back on your life on that day and feel like, well, I've just wasted my life. 
I did a whole lot of things. I achieved a whole lot of stuff. I got a whole lot of accolades, but ultimately now I realize it was completely hollow, empty, and meaningless. And I wish someone had told me. I'm telling you. Scripture is telling you. This is the, the advantage we have now. We know these things now. We know it in this life, and it's not too late now to change the course of your life. Change what or who is at the very center and the very heart of your life and realign your life towards Jesus and towards the kingdom of God and make him your primary, singular, all-consuming passion. To live is Christ. When we make decisions in this life, let's make them in view of that day when we stand before Jesus. Let's make the decisions we're going to wish we'd made on that day. When you think about planning for your future, make the plans you're going to wish you had made on that day when Jesus returns. When you decide what to pour your time and energy and effort into in this life. Pour yourself into the things that you're going to wish you had poured yourself into when Jesus returns. When you decide where to store up your treasures, where your heart ultimately is, store up those treasures you are going to wish you had stored up when Jesus returns. I pray that you wouldn't stand before God on that day filled with regret, but that you would be able to stand there saying, yeah, I was a broken, sinful, weak person, but I sought to make Jesus the very center of my life and live towards him and his kingdom as the Spirit of God enabled me to. And I sought to make those words real in my life, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the life that I live. That's the life that God created me to live. That's what I want you to be able to say on that day. That's what I want to be able to say on that day. And so let's ask Jesus, by his spirit, to so fill us and so overwhelm us with his love and his presence that he becomes the blazing center of our lives, that we can truly say with Paul, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for every one of us, myself included, Pray for all of my brothers and sisters in our church community, for every person watching this in every home, that those words of your servant Paul's would just sink into our hearts this morning in a way they never have before. Jesus, show us the emptiness of the things that we're pursuing that are just distracting us from you, that are hollow, that are pointless, that the world tells us are so important, and yet... Show, show us what they really are, God. And Lord, lead us towards those things that have value, that have real meaning. Lead us most of all, Jesus, towards yourself. Lead us deeper into relationship with you. Give us a greater passion for you. Give us a greater passion to know you deeply and with our whole being. Lord, help us to live lives with you at our very core, our very center. And we pray, Jesus, that you would then influence more and more and more all of the different areas, relationships, dimensions of our lives. We surrender ourselves to you now, Jesus. Lay our lives down and we say, Jesus, come and be the center. Come and be the heart, be the source of my very life, my very existence. I give it all to you, Jesus. We love you. We ask that you would work within us what is pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.